Hello, welcome to Deepak Casts, a podcast series from the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Ted Barron. I'm the executive director here at the DeBartolo Center, and we are in the midst of a podcast series, Indie Film, uh, which looks at the history of American independent film, notable works, and accomplishments throughout this fascinating period of American film history where we see filmmakers working outside the constraints of the Hollywood studio system. This week, we're going to be looking at two films, Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. When folks talk about the 1980s scene of independent cinema, which was a really interesting moment in the history of American film in general, where we start to see kind of the success of uh, more independent productions, two names often are mentioned, Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee. And that's partly because these are the two directors whose early films were uh, two of the big commercial successes of this period and uh, signaled the opportunities that existed in a marketplace which had really been underserved for independent filmmaking, uh, which, which would eventually explode as we move out of the 1980s and into the 1990s. Um, it's notable that these filmmakers uh, come out of traditions which were um, which really didn't have a strong kind of uh, commercial following. Jarmusch, in particular, um, who uh, it was very closely associated with a New York-based movement known as the No Wave movement. No Wave uh, is a movement that extends from film into music and other and other art forms. Um, it included directors like Amos Poe, Beth and Scott B, Charlie Ahern, Eric Mitchell. These were directors working on micro budgets, and we've talked about independent film as a product of uh, a low budget kind of production process where filmmakers were often working with very limited resources. These were filmmakers that were, you know, living in near poverty in New York City in the 1970s at a time when it was possible to do that because the availability of, of uh, places to live, of um, work within the city, which was limited, but you could still get by on kind of low-income jobs uh, within New York, allowed these filmmakers to kind of construct um, some new works which kind of reflected the scene that they were very much a part of. Um, interestingly, it's where we see actors like Steve Buscemi and Vincent Gallo uh, first emerge. Um, in you know roles that are not often featured when people talk about uh, their overall success as as actors, uh, but very much kind of in the mode of these um, smaller productions where we see an intersection between some of the early examples of independent film uh, directors like John Cassavetes being a big source of influence and more experimental filmmakers, people that we associate with the avant-garde, Andy Warhol. Uh, the Kuchar brothers, uh, Jack Smith, uh, among among many others. So we see this kind of odd fusion of um, styles uh, in terms of independent film um, and in these more experimental approaches. But we also see intersections with music uh, being quite prominent. Um, if we think about um, kind of the role of uh, punk rock and post-punk in particular in New York at the time, um, it, it weighs heavy on, on these works. Interestingly, too, is that um, this movement also provides an avenue for women directors. I mentioned Beth B, 
Um, but we see the success of women directors, uh, success, and, and success in quotes, um, opportunities for, for women directors to um, have feature films made and argu arguably create the more cohesive works that come out of this movement. Uh, directors like Lizzie Borden, whose uh, fascinating uh, film Born in Flames from 1980, uh, which looks at uh, a black lesbian rebellion in New York culminating uh, with an attack on the World Trade Center, something that would be unthinkable uh, uh, not too long after that. Uh, Betty Gordon's uh, Variety, which uh, follows uh, a woman living in New York City who um, finds her or searching for kind of a sense of place um, and sort of finds it uh, uh, working at an adult movie theater in Times Square at a point when Times Square is not the Times Square that that we know today. Um, Susan Seidelman, uh, who directs uh, Smithereens, a film that uh, very wonderfully features the music of the feelies, um, but again, looking at uh, a young woman kind of trying to make it uh, in this sort of low-rent uh, New York City society. Um, each of these directors actually goes on to uh, to have uh, you know pretty decent careers. Seidelman probably the most notable uh, because her next feature film is Desperately Seeking Susan, which also captures some of that uh, no wave vibe uh, in a film that gains a lot of more prominence because it features an early performance by um, by Madonna. Um, the, by, but by the mid-1980s, the no-wave movement um, turns into a movement known as the cinema of transgression, which is much more confrontational, um, much more explicit in terms of content, uh, more violent, uh, more uh, – we see more you know, kind of graphic sexual content. And that movement eventually kind of dies off as you go into the late uh, 1980s. Jim Jarmusch uh, was someone who was very plugged into this scene because he was he was a musician in New York. He knew a lot of other uh, fellow musicians. He was very deeply connected within the punk scene, um, and had um, you know a good set of connections with some of the the film makers who were a big part of this. Uh, he probably has one of his first notable credits as a filmmaker was as the sound recordist on Eric Mitchell's 1980 film, uh, Underground USA. But Jarmusch also makes another set of connections when he decides uh, to go to graduate school at NYU to study film. Um, it's here where he meets Sarah Driver, who would become um, his producer on several films and also his partner in, 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 in off-screen. Uh, they have a long uh, relationship together. Uh, and the young filmmaker Spike Lee, who was also in the graduate program at NYU. Uh, for his work at NYU, Jarmusch uh, directed his uh, thesis film, Permanent Vacation, uh, which was a film that very much kind of continues in the vein of um, the no-wave uh, filmmakers, uh, films and filmmakers. It's a film that doesn't get played as much uh, or talked about as much because it's seen as having a much more amateurish quality to it. But certainly when you, see, when you understand kind of Drummish's evolution as a filmmaker coming out of those traditions, it's, a, it's an appropriate um, bridge uh, between you know, his later – from that early period to his later successes. Uh, while he was at NYU, uh, Jarmusch studied with uh, director Nicholas Ray, best known for films like Rebel Without a Cause, uh, Johnny Guitar, among others. And uh, Ray had been um, asked by Vim Vendor to be a subject of his documentary film Lightning Over Water. Um, so Ray had been 
uh, had act- while he was working on this documentary film with vendors, he had hired Jarmusch to serve as his assistant. So Jarmusch got to develop a relationship with Vim Vendors, uh, which proved fortuitous because when Vendors went to shoot his next film project, the state of things, he gave uh, Jarmusch unused film stock, which would ultimately be used uh, as the celluloid material basis for um, Stranger Than Paradise, uh, Jarmusch's breakthrough feature film, not his first feature film since Permanent Vacation preceded that. Um, in the film, um, he casts um, some notable figures from the no wave scene, in particular John Lurie and Richard Edson, both of whom were musicians. Um, working in the city, um, who, again, were living off of, you know, uh, uh, just bare bare minimum income um, through odd jobs that they had acquired in the city. Uh, you know, Lurie talks later about the fact that when he, when he finally uh, received a check for his work in, um, uh, in Stranger Than Paradise, he was still living uh, quite uh, uh, modestly and minimally. Uh, so it was a, a, a more gradual transition. Uh, but it but it set both of the actors up for for greater success later on. The other notable uh, uh, actor within the film is Esther Balint, who was just a teenager at the time. Um, she was the daughter of um, uh, a couple who ran a um, an experimental theater group. Um, uh, they're all Hungarian, uh, and uh, kind of capturing. Uh, the scene, very much a reflection of that that no wave scene in New York, which extends into the theater world, where you had kind of storefront uh, theater companies that could, um, you know, set up uh, do sort of odd uh, performances. Uh, but Balint is is then cast. Uh, she's ca- while she's still a teenager, she's cast um, in the film, and in the role of uh, Lurie's cousin, who arrives unexpectedly. Um, in the city, uh, we see uh, John Lurie's character get a call that his cousin is arriving and that he's going to have to put her up. He reluctantly does so and thus uh, sets the events of the film in motion. The film itself began as a short piece. Uh, Jarmusch screened it all over the city to try to get the funds uh, to finish the film um, and eventually was able to secure funding where he was able to, to develop the project in full. So that first short film uh, is what we would now see as kind of the first segment of the film, which is um, his New York segment. The film, the, the final version of the film is broken into three dis- distinct segments. Uh, the New World, which are uh, scenes of the film that are shot in New York. Uh, one year later, which is uh, the part of the film where um, characters travel to Ohio. It turns out that uh, Balint's character is... Um, on a stopover, essentially, in New York before she goes to stay with um, uh, stay with uh, stay with a family member in uh, outside of Cleveland, which is where Jamush was originally from. And then the third segment, Paradise, is when we see all three of the actors travel to Florida. Um, the film has uh, it's interesting when we look at this film relative to other. Uh, uh, examples of American independent film because what we've seen is is a big str- a, a large strand of realist filmmaking, and in the case of Jarmusch, you know while there's there's a sense of authenticity in terms of you know filming in available spaces, a lot of these films are you know a lot of the scenes are shot on location. Um, there's a much the performance style within the film is much more uh, minimalist, um, arguably more deadpan, which makes it in some ways funnier. Um, there's a, there's a real kind of arch sense of humor 
uh, to the film, which was really played up in uh, in the marketing of the film. Uh, so the film, in terms of you know how it ultimately reaches audiences, uh, plays at uh, film festivals. Uh, it, it goes to the Cannes Film Festival, where it wins the Camera d'Or for best feature, uh, best first feature film. Uh, the National so- Society of Film Critics, for, the National Society of Film Critics, picks it as the best film of 1984, um, and that leads to um, a really successful theatrical run in part because of the critical acclaim, but also because it's really well marketed and really and marketed as, as a hip film with a capital H uh, using the film's uh, you know, music from the film soundtrack, most notably um, the recurring uh, song by uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, I Put a Spell on You, which you hear uh, kind of throughout the film and, and provides a, a source of some funny exchanges between the characters. Um, but really kind of presenting this film as, you know, this is kind of the coolest film that you're ever going to see. And and it worked well. Uh, the film had uh, opened in the fall of 1984, had a long theatrical run well into the next year. Um, based on a budget of $100,000, the film ultimately earned uh, $2.5 million at the box office and set up uh, Jarmusch to make his next feature film, Down by Law, uh, which features uh, Roberto Benigni, Tom Waits, among others, um, as kind of the um, film to watch at the next uh, Cannes Film Festival. So Spike Lee, as uh, you know, as a, a fellow traveler with uh, Jarmusch coming out of NYU's film program, um, even though he, if we look back on his career, it seems like he has he has this meteoric rise in the 1980s. It actually took a little bit longer. Um, his thesis film coming out of NYU. Uh, Joe's Bedside Barbershop, We Cut Heads, was uh, the first student film to get screened at the New Directors New Films uh, Festival in New York in 1983, uh, which was a pretty major accomplishment. Uh, but it took um, it took a couple of years of really kind of hustling and uh, scrounging up funds to get um, his his first official feature film made. Um, She's got to have it, uh, which wasn't completed until 1986. Um, she's got to have it. Um, the story of the film or the narrative of the film centers around uh, four characters. Uh, uh, Nola Darling, played by Tracy Camilla Johns, is a woman who is seen as sexually liberated um, and uh, in a position where she has no qualms about dating three men simultaneously. Um, and those include uh, Jamie, who's very straight-laced, played by Tommy Redman Hicks, um, Greer, uh, who's a, a model, very much uh, kind of self-obsessed, uh, by, uh, played by John Canada Terrell. And then uh, probably the most memorable character, at least in terms of the lasting impact of the film, is the character of Mars Blackman, who's a bike messenger played by Spike Lee. Um, and what the film follows is, you know, using, you know, kind of a, a really kind of fun comedic tone, how uh, – uh, Nola Darling navigates these these relationships um, and still kind of maintains her um, you know interesting power dynamics with e- with each of the men that she's involved with. Um, you know the film ultimately becomes a huge success because 
it's, you know, we can say that it's because of graphic sexual content, but, but really it's more accurately because it's very candid in terms of its, its, its talk about sex, its, um, in its depictions of sex. That's not to say it's not problematic. There are some very dated ideas about sex, particularly that are voiced by some of the male characters. And uh, the film, one of the more controversial aspects of the film is a scene in which um, a, a, a moment between two of the characters builds up to, you know, what is arguably a scene of, of sexual assault. Um, but within this world, we see, um, we see a portrait of Brooklyn in the 1980s, which is still kind of, you know, coming out of the 1970s, not depicted as, you know, the best place to be, um, seen as a much more vibrant community, a place where um, there's a sense of, um, uh, sense of community to be redundant, but um, but a sense of connection between people and a sense of that you know that the world that these characters inhabit is actually really vibrant and alive with um, artistic expression and uh, and joy in a lot of ways. But I mean, it's not. But the film that's that's not to misrepresent the film because what the film ultimately its success built on some of the more sensational aspects of you know being a film that was. Um, very funny and very graphic in terms of its uh, discussions of sex. Um, Spike Lee, unlike Jim Jarmusch, um, who received all sorts of critical acclaim when uh, when uh, when Stranger Than Paradise was released, um, uh, was not a real critic darling at first. Um, a lot of critics expressed reservations about about the film earlier screenings when when Spike was raising money for the film. Um, and played for some critics that they were, you know, really dismissive, uh, thought the film was too gimmicky and just didn't buy into it. Um, but as, it, as the film started to build word of mouth, audiences loved it. Um, and on, based on a budget of 175000 which was, you know, almost twice the size of, of Jarmusch's budget, he was able to generate a revenues of about $7 million through its theatrical release. And following a similar kind of release strategy of, you know, building word of mouth through independent theaters um, in, in bigger cities and letting the film play for months and months uh, as as uh, as as audience interest built around the, uh, for the film, um, but part of that success is also due to a very uh, clever marketing campaign. Uh, there's a great ad that you can find um, in the worldwide, uh, you know, somewhere in the World Wide Web, of uh, the the initial ad campaign for the film, where we see Spike Lee as himself uh, selling tube socks on the streets of New York. Uh, and basically pleading with the uh, with with uh, the audience to go see his new film, so that he is so that he doesn't have to resort to uh, selling socks again. But he didn't have too much to worry about. Um, another kind of byproduct of the film was just this um, public persona that that um, Lee created. Uh, in particular, the Mars Blackman character, um, who starts to pop up in different places. Uh, Mars introduces a performance by uh, Run DMC on Saturday Night Live, uh, but he, but more notably, he became the center of an ad campaign for Nike, which featured none other than Michael Jordan. So that's uh, where we start to see Spike's um, name recognition grow significantly. Um, he followed up. Uh, Spike Lee followed up the. Um, Success of She's Got to Have It with films uh, with the film School Days, which was set at a historically black college, uh, and and probably his most recognized film, Do the Right Thing, which opened in 1989, um, generates a great deal of controversy, but also um, commercial success. 
and arguably opens the door for what will become a new wave of young black filmmakers um, who become prominent in the film industry in the early 1990s, a movement that now gets referred to as the New Jack Cinema uh, period. Um, so another thing to sort of recognize about Spike's accomplishment in terms of you know, representation is that you know, we talked previously about um, the L.A. Rebellion and how it was a response to the commercial success of, of the black exploitation movement. The thing about the L.A. Rebellion is that it really played to limited audiences. We don't see a real kind of wide, uh, a, a, a more mainstreaming of, of those films. Um, and after the end of black exploitation, it seemed like the films that were being told about the lives of black Americans were shifting over to white directors. Um, one, one of the notable examples was, you know, the, the, the choice to have Steven Spielberg direct um, the very popular, uh, what, what it was expected to be the popular adaptation of Alice Walker's um, The Color Purple. But I would say with Spike's success in the 1980s and, and into the 1990s, that really changed that trajectory and made it an, an imperative for these stories to be told uh, to be told by black filmmakers. So we're seeing in both um, Stranger Than Paradise and She's Gotta Have It um, – a kind of grassroots effort to to build independent filmmaking. It's very much based in New York films that are shot in and around the city, but also building audience um, through you know, a successful release strategy in New York. And while that continues for you know for some other filmmakers throughout this period, you could you know the early films by the Coen Brothers, uh, David Lynch starts to uh, kind of break through uh, more commercially. Um, what it sets up is a new strategy that will really be changed in the 1980s and that will have a lot to do with the institutions um, and the, the modes of exhibition that are, that are shifting as we come out of this period. But these two films offer a really fascinating snapshot of, of how uh, indie film um, starts to become more recognized um, uh, to, to uh, more people, you know, larger audiences, uh, which again opens up the opportunity for even bigger successes in the next decade. So that uh, wraps up this episode of Indie Film as part of our Deepak Cast series. We hope you join us next time.